Welcome to Kimmy on Liberty. This week, my friend Larry Sharp. He is the former libertarian candidate for governor of New York, all-around master communicator. He lives in AOC's district, and he thinks he can pick off her biggest supporters. Check it out. I suspect we will. <laughs> Larry, good to see you. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for coming to my city. I appreciate it. Yeah. Welcome. Uh, all the beautiful things happen here in Manhattan. This is the center of the world for many reasons. It's financial, not as much anymore, but used to be. But more importantly, Trump comes from here. Bloomberg comes from here. AOC comes from here. So they all come from here. AOC is my congressperson. Libertarian candidate for governor, Larry Sharp, that comes from me. here. Yes, yeah. absolutely. That guy. That guy's pretty cool. That's what yeah. I hear, at least. That's that's what you hear. Yes, yeah, what I hear. So I wanted to talk to you about um, something that you said a while back, and I think you say it all the time, but your your personal history mm-hmm. it creates an opportunity for you to talk about capitalism and markets and liberty in a way that is um, is compassionate and and bleeding heart and empathetic to people that are struggling sure. today, particularly the millennial generation. And I, I thought it would be interesting for, for people to get to know you a little bit on my show. And, and let's start a little bit with, yeah. with some of your personal background. And, and, and let's talk about your candidacy first so that people understand that, that you're like a big L libertarian. I am. I'm, I'm a proud big L libertarian. Um, I don't, there's so many things you put there. Let me just see if I can go in right order. I'll, I'll go backwards the forwards if I can remember them. Uh, I'm a big L libertarian. It's true. I believe the Libertarian Party is the only answer for America. I don't think there's any other answer right now. And some people don't like that. They think I'm crazy, but I can't see anything else. The Republicans and Democrats are not going to unite us. There is no way they can, right? They've become tribes. If you look at both of those parties, they're no longer parties. They're just tribes. How do you know that? If you're old enough, you have gray hair like me, you, you know, you can look, think back and look at a... A, a Carter Democrat versus a Clinton Democrat versus an Obama Democrat, uh, a Reagan Republican versus a Bush Republican versus a Trump Republican. They're different. And they're different because the warlord on top of the tribe has changed. And that warlord decides our tribe is this. And everyone says, yes, and that's how it works. Oh, you leave our tribe. And people are leaving the tribes too, but that's what they do. But our party's different in that we have a very simple philosophy. And that is be as liberal as you want to be or as conservative as you want to be. Just don't force your views on others, which is the only way we can come together, which is why we fight so much, because we have liberals and conservatives in the same room saying, I think you're wrong, or I think you're wrong, or I think you're wrong, but not saying there ought to be a law to stop you. Yeah, You can do what you want to do. I still think you're wrong, but you can do what you want to do. That's the only way to unite us. That's why I'm a big libertarian. And, and, and I think it's worse, and everybody says it's worse, but politics has, has essentially become a proxy for a culture war. Sure where one tribe mostly just resents how the other tribe lives their life. Absolutely. And they want to get controls to the of the ring or the right. keys to the kingdom so mm-hmm. that they can force that other tribe to live the way that they want them to live. Well, it's the, it's the idea of elections have consequences, right? Ele- and what that means is whenever you hear elections have consequences, it means my side wins, shut up. Yeah. That's what it means. My yeah. side wins, shut up. But in our view, my side wins, go be you, right? Yeah. Yeah. My side wins. Now go be you, right? Not now you must be me. I can still be me and I can still say things that I think are right or wrong or just or unjust, but I don't have to force my views on you. It's my job. If you say to yourself, uh, I'm so conservative or I'm so liberal, great. But do you believe it's the government's job to enforce your will upon others? If you do, you're a Democrat or Republican. If you say, no, I'm great, I'm liberal, or I'm, de- or I'm conservative, but I think it is not the government's job. It's, it's my job through my example, through my community, uh, through my works, to make the culture more liberal or conservative the way I want it, you're a libertarian. Yeah. And that's the huge difference in why I'm a big libertarian. There's this joke that it's a meme that libertarians love to, to share um, that says something like, uh, libertarians conspiring to take over the government so that we can leave people alone. <laughs> yes, exactly right. So yes. So why would someone like me be that, right? I guess that's the other part you were talking about, right? Yeah. And the reason why I would be that, particularly coming from New York New York City, I was born in Manhattan, raised in the, in the South Bronx. I live in Queens now. AOC is literally my congressperson. 
So why would I be that way? Because several things. The first thing is I didn't realize how libertarian I was until Gary Johnson, 2012. 2012 was when I actually became libertarian. And I mean, officially, I joined the party, became, I was always a guy who was more of a rebel. I didn't care. I thought, you know, Nader's the guy or Perot's the guy. And not that I knew their policies, but because- The outsider. They were the outsiders. That's what I thought. I, you, I couldn't have told you the, Nader's policies. In fact, when Nader first came on the scene, out of ignorance, I just thought he was uh, Perot's replacement. I, did, I had no idea of different parties. I just assumed he was his replacement because, oh, there's the third party guy. So I still remember Anderson from, from 1980. I still remember that, right? I, still, I thought that they now, were— Now you're dating yourself. I am. I'm, yes, I am dating myself. But I still remember that, right? So, so I was always that guy. But I had been kind of training the libertarian views for a long time. I've been training entrepreneurship and leadership for years. What I do for my day job, right? I, I train people. I train uh, uh, companies. I train uh, state organizations here in New York City. I train leadership and, and, and entrepreneurship. And one of the things I talked about was post-industrial leadership, which is the idea that I don't require anymore your arms and legs as much as I used to, right? Often I will either buy those someplace else or I'll use automation to somehow get your arms and legs. I need your brain, right? And a good leader's job is to get as much of his or her employees as possible, their brain every day, as much as they can get every day. I need your intellect, I need your uh, intuition, I need your uh, creativity, I need your initiative, all those things more than anything else. How do I do that? By getting you to buy into my ideas, by getting you to want to, by volunteering. Volunteerism is the core of what libertarian theory is about. I was teaching that already without knowing it was libertarianism. Then all of a sudden I heard Gary Johnson speak in 2012 and I thought, oh, this guy's an entrepreneur like me, this guy's a business guy like me, he makes sense. I didn't know what libertarian was. I thought, oh, librarians? You guys must be smart. Oh, that's good. I love that. I just didn't know. But then I began to understand what this was about. And that's one of the reasons why I'm able to communicate the message relatively well because I've been teaching it for years before I even knew I was teaching it. And that's how I kind of became libertarian through the business world. Now, on so, top of so that, living liber liberty instead yes. of reading a bunch of books. Um, I'm one of those book nerds. Mm -hmm. So I read all the books. Um, I did afterwards, yeah. right after I, I actually was reading a book. I, I got into this philosophy, believe it or not, from a, a business guru, Robert Ringer. Yeah. Some people don't know Robert Ringer, but he's more of a business guru. He's actually an objectivist. I'm not an objectivist, but he is, and he kind of got me into that a, world of- A fan of, of Ayn Rand. Yes, yeah. absolutely, yes. So he, he, he's the guy who says, you know, go read Atlas Shrugged and Fountainhead, and, that, and that's him. And that kind of got me into the book realm. Uh, doing what he asked me to do. And his famous book was called, remind me again. Yes, of course, Looking Out for Number One. Yeah. Looking Out for Number One, and then To Be or Not to Be Intimidated, and Action, Nothing Happens Until Something Moves. I didn't know he was an objectivist, but hearing those titles, it, it sort of, <laughs> finally, I, I learned something. Absolutely, yes, yeah. 100%, yes. And for those of you in business, uh, To Be or Not to Be Intimidated is one of the best books for someone to change how they brand themselves. It's basically a book on branding. Uh, he does that type of that type of uh, uh, intelligent. I'm giving him a bringer a push. You owe me check. <laughs> anyway, so yes, so I'm giving him a, him a push today. But uh, yeah, he, that's what got me into it. And yeah. then I started to read. I read Basiat's The Law, right? So then I went into the other ones, which were non-business. That was later on. So that's kind of how I, I got into that world. But you brought up something about capitalism. I'm, I'm going back. See, am I remembering it all? I'm going back to each one of them. Uh, I never used the phrase capitalism because. Capitalism in today's world isn't actually capitalism. It's crony capitalism. That's what it is. So since that's what it is, when people hear capitalism, they, they assume crony capitalism. Yeah. Crony capitalism destroys the poor, right? Capitalism doesn't, but crony capitalism completely does, and they're right to believe that it does. It does. Our current form does that. But I grew up in a poor neighborhood, and I remember in the poor neighborhood I grew up in, in the Bronx, there were no cabs that would come to our neighborhood back then. This is the 70s. Right? Cabs wouldn't come to our neighborhood. So we had gypsy cabs. One guy would paint one side of his door a different color, and then that's how we knew it was a gypsy cab because his door was – he had a black car but a red door. Okay, you're a gypsy cab. So we knew, and we'd go and get that, and that's how we knew to get around, around our, our neighborhood and such. That was entrepreneurship. We had guys back in the day when they used to make metal, uh, cars out of metal who would bang dents out of cars on the street, and you'd pay them X bucks, and they would bang the, the, the dents out of your cars and, and then you know, paint them over. We had girls who would sit out front and braid hair. 
right? They would braid hair for a buck or whatever it was, and that's how they made money, right? People made money using their entrepreneurial spirit. That's how they got out. My father and I got out, my, my mother and I got out of the, out of the, the uh, bad neighborhood of the South Bronx, which isn't that bad anymore, but was bad then in the 70s, um, because we were part-time DJs, right? It was entrepreneurship. This is, the, this is the, the, the disco era. So we were disco DJs at night, right? So do, that's how we got out, making the extra money to get us out and get us off to Long Island. When I was in high school, I went to high school in Long Island because I was able to get out as we got older, and that was through entrepreneurial spirit. All those things are crushed now. You need a license in New York State to braid hair. You need a license to walk a dog, right? Who in the world, what, is there a big dog walker? Is, is there big braid? It doesn't exist, right? Yeah. The guy who starts, or the gal who starts a dog walking business or a hair braiding business is someone who's trying to make themselves better. They probably have a criminal record. They probably got a bad credit. They probably got, went through a horrible divorce. They probably can't get a job. They've got a terrible resume. They're trying to make themselves better. There has to be a chance for second chances and a chance, and that chance comes from entrepreneurship. That's the critical piece. If you look at most brown and black communities, mo- many of them immigrant communities, but not all, but many are, what's the thing they all have? Entrepreneurial spirit. That's literally the war on drugs. It's a war on entrepreneurship. It literally is. It's a war on entrepreneurship. So when we now legalize these drugs, the first thing we do is we make sure only big business can win. Right. So again, we destroy the entrepreneurial spirit. That's all we do. As we constantly destroy the entrepreneurial spirit, all of a sudden you find that the poor cannot move. Remember something. Government's job is not to help. Government's job is to serve. So they serve the poor. If there's no poor, they can't serve them. There's no intent to get them out of anything. Right? This goes to what I call the at least mindset. You hear people say it all the time. Well, at least there's something. The at least mindset keeps you in poverty. I don't want the at least mindset. The at least mindset is by default, it's condescending. It's they can't get anything, so at least we'll give them this. I mean, you're, you're King Louis XIV, right? At least give them this, at least that. No, give them every opportunity to have success. The poorer communities are dying to be entrepreneurs. You can see it everywhere. You see, that's why they fight. We make laws that put them in jail for business and they still keep the businesses going. Literally, we put them in jail, and they still keep the businesses going. These are illegal businesses, and they keep doing it again and again and again. You think we learn? We don't. Let, let's unpack. You, you, you blew through a couple examples that I think are really powerful, the difference between cronyism and entrepreneurship. Sure. And you mentioned the fact that the taxi monopoly, yep. the very classic studied taxi monopoly in, in New York City would not come to your neighborhood. So there was a, a black market technically illegal mm-hmm. entrepreneurial response. Yep. And and I'm thinking about the ongoing war between the taxi monopoly, which is losing yep. some of its value because of technology and Uber and Lyft and stuff like that. Um, you know, who are those drivers? Like there's there's the insiders mm-hmm. that deal with government and get special deals and and know a guy in City Hall and they get quite wealthy that way, versus um, mostly immigrant drivers that, that love the a la carte economy yeah. and, and love the fact that they can be their own bosses. For the, per- for the person who doesn't know how New York City works, we have a medallion process, right? Which means there's a certain number of medallions, which means if you have a medallion, you're authorized to be a yellow, a yellow uh, taxi, taxi in New York City. Or a green one. They added the green because they care about us. Yeah. So they added green because they love us. So you have to have that, 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 uh, that medallion, right? So that medallion itself has value. Right? You get it from the state or from the city, and then you sell to others. So the people who own the medallions aren't the drivers. They're people who've bought a bunch of medallions and now sell them on the market. Yeah, like, like head funds. That's correct. That's all they medallions. are. Yes. Yeah. The driver is an immigrant family that now is so bad. And if you've ever talked to them, and I do because I take cabs, I talk to them, you'll find often it's two brothers or two cousins, and they drive the car for 22 hours because there's only they can afford it. One takes an 11-hour shift, an hour off, 11-hour shift hour off, 11-hour shift, on and on and on. They do two 11-hour shifts, and the car runs 22 hours a day, seven days a week. They don't stop running it. It's the only way they can make money. And they still are committing suicide at record rates. The medallion process that's run by the government is literally simply a war on immigrant families. It's a way to punish immigrant families. Every single time they try to make it better, all they do is hurt. It's, it's the wrong answer. So again, if I decide to make a license for hair braiding, Let's be clear. People always think the same thing. Why, if there's no license, then people will die or whatever. No, you can still have standards. I have nothing against government from saying, 
I believe that if you're going to braid hair, you should have these standards. And if you don't have these standards, you don't get government stamp X. Okay, no worries. Totally fine with that. Now, I can choose to get those standards if I want to and get the government stamp or not. The only difference is when I open up my hair braiding store or front or whatever that is, I simply say, not authorized by federal government. You see that in health food stores every single day, right? Health food stores, natural food stores, not, not, you know, not, um, um, uh, no, not FDA approved. No worries. Now what happens? The consumer decides if it matters or not. I'm not saying you can't have standards. Have them. And if you're someone who goes, I'm going no place that the government doesn't authorize, good for you. There will be people who will have government authorized stamps. Go there. No worries. But why are you stopping me from going to someone else to support my local community? Why are you helping me from supporting someone who I think is good or better? Why are you stopping someone who is poor from trying to raise themselves up? Don't stop them. If you want to go to someplace, go. It, it creates two options, right? Monopoly is bad. People would agree. Government's monopoly. Government's bad too. So how about instead you keep the standard and create a second or third standard? And now more people can have better standards. And what happens is one of two things. Government standard gets better or goes away. Both are the right answer. Crony capitalism is the collusion between monopoly mm -hmm. government and business insiders that have enough juice and maybe they paid enough cash Absolutely. to get that monopoly. That's where monopoly in business sure. comes from. Well, often they also do oligarchies or duopolies, so it seems like it's not a monopoly. Yeah. Right? We'll have two big guys instead of one, and then we'll agree to where we're going to go, and now it's a cartel system. So it's not a monopoly because it's two of us. You get the East Coast, I get the West Coast. We're, we're, two, we're two different crime families. You said earlier, and I'm going to restate it because I think it's important that people understand this, the war on drugs is a war on black and brown entrepreneurs. 100%. Explain. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and now white entrepreneurs also. Not, it's not – if you're a person of color like me, some people who from my community, black community, are a bit upset because now opioids are an epidemic. They were destroying my family and friends in the 80s. No one gave a shit. The answer was, you know, just say no. That was the answer in the 80s. When it's brown and black people going to jail for life, when it's brown and black people being destroyed and their families being crushed, then it's just say no. Oh, now it's white people? Oh, it's an epidemic now, right? It's been an epidemic for 40 years, right? It's been crushing us for 40 years. But now it's crushing everybody. So now it's a bigger deal. I get it. Look, I'm happy it's a big deal now, right? I say that just so people understand where I'm coming from. But it's, it's been a big deal for 40 years. And yes, think about this. Think about all the people who ran a business in the 80s and 90s with the cops around them, violence, all those things, and still made millions. We thought as a society, put them in jail. That was what we thought as a society because they're evil, because we've deemed a substance bad. We put someone in jail because a substance is bad, not because they've done something bad. But Larry, there's violence. You're right, there is. Well, of course there's violence. If you're a drug dealer, you don't have courts or cops. So you don't have any violence. You make it legal, you have violence, right? Why does, why, does the, uh, why does McDonald's not go to war with Burger King? Because if there's a problem, they call the cops or they use courts or law. That's violence. It's just outsourced violence. But it's still violence, right? Guys with guns come when you have a problem. But they have uniforms and badges and we've paid them and that's how it works. Well, when you don't have that, you have to hire your own people who have guns to, to enforce your contracts and to enforce your intellectual property and those types of things. You have to do that. So make it legal and the violence goes away, but they're just businesses. So they are, right? I've, I've told many people, but Larry, these drugs, these drugs are bad. This is a common thing I get all the time. How can you end the war on drugs, Larry? My daughter or my son died from drugs. Be very clear. My mother was an addict. My mother was an addict. My mother was a convicted felon. So I know, and my father, believe it or not, was a corrections officer at Rikers Island. So I know both sides of the story. So you can't tell me that all of a sudden, you know, I don't understand this. I do know this. And I know friends who've committed suicide. Of course, I'm a veteran. I know these things, right? Of course I do. So someone says, well, Larry, you know, my, my daughter or my son died of drugs. No, the drugs didn't kill your daughter or son. The war on drugs did. You want to be angry at, at your son or your daughter, your cousin, your niece dying? Be mad at the last eight presidents. Be mad at them. They killed your loved one. Not the war on drugs. Because I asked people, and I, look, when I was going across this state, People brought this up because I wanted to regulate cannabis like onions. That's, and I wasn't joking. That was like onions. You want to go off and, 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 and grow your own medicine in your backyard? Go on with your bad self. Do your thing if you want to. You want to buy it from the local guy? There was a meme that came out that said, 
Larry Sharp, if you like your dealer, you keep your dealer, right? Because literally the dealer that you have could just decide overnight, okay, it's legal now. I'm gonna go down and, and, get, a, uh, and get a DBA and now I'm gonna sell weed legally and I'll pay taxes and I don't have to carry a gun or a bat anymore. Life is good, right? That was my, my goal. And I bring this up, I'm sorry, I'm going all over the place because this is a, it's a big deal for me. As I cross the country, people would say things like, Larry, you don't understand, my son died of an of overdose. And I would say, let me ask you a question. Um, when your son died, I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess and tell me if I'm right. Your son had uh, stopped using for a while and then went to a new dealer and overdosed. Yes, that's what happened. Yeah, that's because of the war on drugs. Yeah. If there was no war on drugs, your son doesn't do that. Would your son be an addict? Maybe your son might still be an addict now, but he wouldn't be dead, which means he has a chance to heal, right? My mom healed because she had my support and support structure. That's how you heal is through support structure, no matter what, whether that's a 12-step program or whether it's another drug or whatever it is for you, support is how you wind up getting rid of your addiction, dealing with your, your addiction more than anything else. So my mom had that through me. You don't have that, you don't do it. The problem with the war on drugs is now people who are who are in trouble literally separate themselves from the people who need it the most. They're hiding. They're, they're hiding. hiding. Correct. Yeah. Right? Taking drugs is actually a social thing. It's why we drink together with friends. It's why we smoke weed together with friends. It's why we do all types of things. It's why we, we run a marathon. Some people get high from exercising. We run a marathon together with friends, right? Getting high with friends is a human thing. It doesn't have to be through drugs. It can be through religion. It can be through spirituality. But it's always with people, and so is doing heroin or whatever is your drug. It doesn't matter. So they go and hang out with their friends alone, and the family support choice that they need is now gone and afraid of them. I can't get close to my friend. I'll go to jail. So when I require my support structure the most, I can't have it. The war on drugs is, what, is what's killing everybody, n not the drugs itself. So one of the, one of the challenges that uh, on the face of it, it seems counterintuitive that legalizing all the drugs makes drug use safer and, and helps people that are in trouble. And it's sort of an economic logic. It's, there's a little bit of supply and demand analysis going on. But the emotional reaction is, um, but more people will die. Which is why, if you notice when I ran, I never talked about legalizing all drugs. I never did. I don't think socially we're ready for it. Logically, of course it makes sense. And I think one day we have to get there. Eventually, we have to get there eventually. We just, we just have to. Is that going to be 10 years or 100 years? I don't know. But we have to get there. What I talked about was just doing the one that people can handle right now, which is cannabis. Let's just regulate cannabis like a, a plant. You pick the plant. I picked onions. I don't care. Tomatoes. You pick, right? It's a plant. Regulate it like a plant. I liked onions because I happened to be in Western New York at the time. And we grow onions in Western New York. Most people don't know that, but there's a lot of onions growing in Western New York. So... So I, I, was, I was in Western New York when I said that, so I said onions and it's just stuck. But I don't care, any plant first. That will change the entire landscape of drug use in the country. When that landscape changes, we then decide, okay, what's the big issue now? And let's move on the next one, whatever that is. And on the next one, wherever that is. That's something our society can handle. The problem we have is most people who are thinking about the drug war aren't understanding American culture. Culture matters. Culture matters. Culture trumps intelligence. Culture trumps logic. Culture trumps book learning. Culture trumps everything. So we have to understand the culture. The culture has been drugs bad, you die. That's been our culture for at least 50 years, if not more. You don't end that in five minutes. Of course, the, our solution really depends on robust culture and communities and families. Absolutely. And, and all of these, um, I would call them spontaneous institutional structures that would and could and will work if that person in trouble is free to sort of come out of the closet and say, you know what, I'm an addict. Yes. I'm in trouble. Most yep. people don't get in trouble because of drugs, but I am. And and if I come out to my neighbors, I'm, I'm not gonna put them in risk. Right. And I'm not going to go to jail. Correct. Even though I haven't harmed anybody or taken anybody's stuff, I'm not gonna go to jail for this 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 nonviolent thing that I do. Right, absolutely. And then th look, is it, is it all of a sudden going to make it to where everyone's perfect? No, we never get that, right? You, you can't force perfection. It doesn't work. I can make a better system to ensure that when people fall down, and they will, they have a chance of getting back up. Look, we're a nation of second chances. Most people came to America for a second chance. Not all, but most came to America for a second chance. Stuff wasn't working at the home country, and they said, okay, this isn't working. We're going to come here and give it another shot, right? That's what we were about, a second chance. 
when we start having zero tolerance policies or hammering everybody policies, or, or the first answer is always the stick and never the carrot, we're destroying that entire, the enti- that entire um, culture. Right? Zero tolerance is a disaster. I bring it up in, in business, I bring it up in, in life, in culture, family. When you force perfection, you will get deception. Guaranteed, every single time, no matter what. And that's in business, that's in life, that's in politics. You have to create a system that gives us the best possible outcomes and accepts there will be failures because we are humans and punishes those who are repeat offenders who are just gonna keep doing bad things and gives people who made a mistake a chance of, of making things right. We do that and we got a better system. So one of the things that you did, and I think this was a video that you made when you were running for uh, vice president under the libertarian ticket, or maybe it was a governor's race, you can correct me, is you sort of opened up and told your personal story. That was of, 2016 running for the VP slot. And so, and, and this is something that libertarians really, really suck at, is, is being willing to sort of tell their story or somebody else's story Mm -hmm. that, you know, we want to like talk about philosophy or economics or something. Um, You had a hard time growing up. Tell that story. Well, um, I'm adopted. Um, And the funniest thing is I I didn't know I was adopted until I was 30 years old. My parents lied to me for 30 years. So that was kind of interesting. Oh, wow. (laughs) So, so yes. So um, I was adopted. um, And this is New York State, where I was born in Manhattan. And in New York State, you, you, uh, at that time, I don't know if that is still true, you could only be adopted by the same race. There were racial laws in New York State. Wow. Yes, I know. The, wow. the, yes, this is the 60s. You would think it wouldn't be, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the, 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 um, the liberal bastion that New York State is, there were racial laws. So I ha- because I'm mixed race, I had to be adopted by a mixed race couple. Otherwise, they wouldn't let me be adopted. I got lucky and happened to find a mixed race couple. That's insane couple. that that happened in a yes. lifetime. That is insane. In the 60s, yeah. that happened to happen. Yes. So I happened to get a mixed race couple. And I found out later the reason why my birth mother um, um, put me for adoption was because her family wouldn't accept me. That's how I found out later, like 30, 40 years later, I found that out. So anyway, so I was adopted. So my, my mother who adopted me was from Germany, a German immigrant. And my father was, it was a, a, a former uh, a veteran. He was a veteran. So they, they brought me to the Bronx where I, where I grew up um, and um, we got to, they got divorced. So the second father figure in my life left, but never saw him again, he left. My mother got an, uh, hooked up with another man who also was a veteran, just veterans in my life. So veterans in my life, and uh, he was the man who raised me and I called him my father. I was believed he was my father my entire, he raised me. He's the one who became the DJ, got us out of, got us out, of the, uh, out of the South Bronx. And as soon as he got us out of the South Bronx, he died of cancer. It took him two years to die. And one thing I remember, uh, I remember many things from that, but one of them I remember is, again, he was in law enforcement. First he was a cop, then he was a, um, a corrections officer. He had some cop friends. They used to let him smoke weed that they would confiscate from people in the cop car, the backseat of the cop car. This is the seventies. This is it's illegal. Yeah. And the cops let because he had gastrointestinal cancer. And any of you who know about how that works, you can't eat. You physically can't eat. So he would smoke weed to calm himself down, so he could actually put some food into him. So they they, let him, they would they would confiscate weed from some guy on the street, call him up. Bring him out to the car. He's in the back, smoke some weed. Then he go back home. So yeah, that's that's. I still remember that from this is about seventy nine, maybe seventy eight, and then I, f- I forgot when it was. It was late seventies. In any case, so um, I remember that 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 very well. So he passed away, and it was just me and my mom. And my mom, uh, her family uh, basically abandoned her because she left Germany, and my father's family abandoned us because they only cared about him. They didn't care about us. So we were alone all of a sudden. So I had to become the man. The, I had to become the man of the house at about twelve. Tough to do, obviously. So I decided I was gonna go be a Marine. So at 17, I left. My mother could not handle losing both her husband and me, and that's when she went to drugs. So at that point, she goes into drugs. Um, I come back when I'm uh, 23, 24, give or take. She's in prison, I pull her out of prison. Um, All she has left is basically what's in her bags, everything else gone. My childhood's gone. Everything from my childhood, gone. I don't have any of my old books, all gone because it was all confiscated when the cops came in and trashed the house and took everything and everything was sold and confiscated, so that's all gone. So I pick her up, I help her get up, back up and running, and I always remember how she felt like she was a hostage any job she got. She hardly ever got jobs. She would lie on her form all the time. She never said she was a felon. She always lied, hoped that they wouldn't check. Sometimes they checked and they wouldn't hire her. Sometimes they would check afterwards and fire her. 
So she always thought, what could I do? So that's the reason why I fell back again to entrepreneurship. I wasn't a natural entrepreneur. It wasn't what I was. I was a Marine, I was a teacher, and then I was a sales rep. So I decided, you know what? I'm gonna start a business, and I started a trucking business. And the number one reason why I started a trucking business is so my mom wouldn't be a hostage. So I made her, she had 100% control of the company. I had no control of the company. I, I built the company out. We had two trucks. She ran that company until she retired. And it, she was the owner. I did it for two years, and then I left after I built it up. And I just let her run the company with my stepfather. Uh, they ran the company for several years. And then they had to leave because New York State's so oppressive, they had to leave New York State. They couldn't retire here. So they went to South Carolina. My mom passed in South Carolina. So that's kind of how I got my, my whole start. But w with that, it, it got even worse. In 2008, when the crash was coming, I didn't feel the crash myself totally until about 2009, 2010. I was a consultant, and I thought, I'm the smartest guy around. I got it all covered. I've got two different fields that will never go down together, commercial real estate and investment banking. Those will never go down together, ever. And, of course, that's exactly what went down. Devastated my business. Um, I had about 90% decrease in my income in about three months. Just boom. Um, over time, I thought, well, how long could this last, right? Three months, maybe. I'll be fine. Well, clearly that wasn't true. So I had to shut my office down, fire my employees. My business was collapsing. At exactly the same time that was happening, my daughter, my youngest daughter, almost died. She had to have open heart surgery at 18 days old. She was just born. My, my wife literally packs up and moves into the hospital. Just moves into the hospital. Of course. Well, I already had a six-year-old daughter. So all of a sudden, I become single dad overnight when I'm not the primary caregiver at all. My, my wife was a stay-at-home mom. All of a sudden, I'm single dad. My business is collapsing. My daughter's about to die. And my mom gets diagnosed with stage four cancer all in the same week. Just horrible. Worst time of my life ever. Yeah. So having to come back from that, uh, people often ask me, Larry, sometimes you seem a bit humble. Well, because I've had my ass kicked. Again, right? again and again. Yes. Get your ass kicked enough, and you'll be like, you know what? Maybe I'm not the smartest guy in the room. Yeah. Maybe I'm not wonderful and perfect. Maybe I'm just as human as anybody else. And maybe fate will smack me around like it'll smack anybody else around whenever fate decides to do so. So I think that was my most humbling. I mean, many things humbled me, but that was my most humbling piece is when everything just collapsed and having to rebuild my marriage, rebuild my relationship with my wife, um, accept my mom's passing, um, fix my business, accept total business failure and rebuilding from zero and rebooting my entire company from zero. I think all of that was very humbling for me. So, And today your, your business is thriving. And, and I wouldn't say thriving. I spent a year and a half running for governor, not taking a salary. So surviving maybe is better. Are you incorporated in New York? I am, yes. Well, that, um, that, I, might, that, that might be part of the problem. It is, but the, look, I'm, I'm not asking the government to, uh, to, look, to look for me. So yeah. I, I'm keeping, I work in New York mostly. The vast majority of my customers are in New York. So I incorporate in New York. But so yes. where did you get like the, I'm going to pick myself up again and again and again and just put my head down and work through this? Where, where did you learn how to do that? Or was that, were you born with that? Um, I don't think I was born with that, but maybe. I, I think all of us are both a combination of nature and nurture and everything we do. Um, I think just having no option. There was never a plan B available for me. Right? When you have a plan B, there's an old saying, right? If you have a plan B, you'll take a plan B. Um, I've never had a plan B. If it wasn't me, it was no one. No siblings, no family. There wasn't a plan B for me, right? When my, when my business was collapsing, there wasn't anyone there to go, I got you. There wasn't someone to give me a big loan or to get me out of it. There was no one. It was either I fix this or no one does. It's a thing I say often with people that I meet who are trying to fix their lives. And they say, but I need this, I need that. And my response to them, okay, great. If you don't fix it, who will? And if they have an answer, awesome. They get the person to fix it. You have someone. Good for you. And some people do, right? Mom or dad or brother or cousin or friend will fix it for you. Awesome. Go do that. You don't have that. Well, then it's you or nobody. So I think the, the pickup piece is because there simply was nobody. It was me or it was no one. And this is the root of what I wanted to talk to you about today because I think there is um, – I won't just pick on millennials or Generation Z, but there – there is definitely a new sense that that the word work mm -hmm. is a bad word. Sure. And that that no plan B for them, they, they want as their first option a safety net, mm -hmm. uh, someone that sort of guarantees outcomes and guarantees that when they fall, you'll be there to pick them up. And, and how do we rehabilitate 
the word work because the, the best moments in your life, we just talked about the worst moments mm-hmm. in your life, the best moments in your life were at the end of a grinding process. Sure. You, you worked your ass off. You, you probably spent uh, nights awake thinking that you weren't going to make it. But sure. when you made it, that's that's satis- that, that moment sure. is, is what makes life worth living in my mind. Well, there's a cultural problem here in America that has affected most millennials. It's not all, but most of them. There is, and I deal with this in business, right? Often when I'm doing trainings, most of the people in the room when I'm training are senior people. So most are Gen Xers or boomers, right? Most aren't millennials. Some are, but most aren't. And I hear constantly things like, oh, these millennials this, these millennials that. I hear it all the time. And I tell them that you're actually wrong, that millennials will work as hard as you, if not harder, but millennials are looking for something that Gen Xers aren't and that boomers aren't either. And that is, at work, they're looking for community and purpose. If you don't give them community and purpose, they feel wrong, bad. They don't know why. They don't know they want that. Right? That's the, the problem is they don't know they want it. They want it. And how do I know this? Look at nonprofits. Look at millennials working nonprofits. They will work 20 hours straight, sleep under the desk, not shower, sadly not shower. By the way, these millennials will not behind the camera. <laughs> yes, they, yeah, yeah. They're, they're the bad ones. They're, they're, very, they're very coddled. <laughs> there we go, yeah, they're the bad ones. They're old millennials. There we go, yes. So they'll sleep under their desk, get back up and get back to work because they have purpose and community. Now you might say, well, everybody wants purpose and community. It's true. But if you're a Gen Xer or if you're a baby boomer, if you don't get it, no worries. You still work and you go and find it someplace else. You join a trade association, you join a... a, a a hobby group, your church, you join the Knights of Columbus, you go and find your community someplace else. If millennials don't get it at work, then they have a problem, they don't know it. What happens? Many of them will beg for more money or think that their job isn't fulfilling so they need a new job or they won't wanna work because it's not fulfilling. And if you're uh, an uneducated um, employer, you might go, okay, here's more money. But then they're still unhappy. So they ask for more money because they're actually unhappy. What they actually want is community and purpose. They don't actually want more money, they don't know any better. So if we, when we're leading millennials, we have to ensure they understand why what they're doing matters, who else it affects. It doesn't have to be this glorious, I'm saving the world. It can't just be, we're making people who, uh, you know, uh, get haircuts feel better. Oh, okay, I got it. We're making people feel better with haircuts. Yeah, we're not just selling razors, right? Selling razors makes millennials feel like, uh making people feel better when they get haircuts, oh, okay, that's better. Now, I'm, I'm making that up, obviously. Yeah. But conceptually, a business, why do you think so many millennials, when they go on interviews, I interview many of them, they go on the website, they go on the Instagram, and they look and they say, what's this company about? They care about what the company's about. It doesn't have to be saving the world, but it can't just be about money. Would you add the word service to that? Um, sure, purpose, absolutely. Service. Service, absolutely, yes. People think it has to be saving the whales or something. It doesn't. It just has to be bigger than money. Yeah. If it's that, you will find many millennials doing it. And here's the reason why we have a cultural issue. In the 80s and 90s, there was a push to grow self-esteem. And that movement was absolutely well-intentioned. It was to try to make better kids, to make people strong, because good self-esteem does make people stronger, more resilient. That's true. But the problem is they didn't realize that it's not about telling someone they're great. It's about people achieving things. So they went about and said, you've achieved things. Why? Because you showed up, right? And showing up became an achievement, right? Which is why so many people want to work for an hourly. I showed up for eight hours, boss, pay me. And the idea of providing value isn't, in their, isn't even in their world. That's not what they were taught. For mo- if you were the average millennial raised by the average family, it's not 100% true, obviously. This is a generalization. You were told that, tell your kid your kid is awesome because they showed up. Tell your kid your kid is awesome because they were born. Tell them they're awesome and build their self-esteem. The problem is now you've done that for so long, the achievement wasn't part of the equation. But then it's the second part of the achievement, and that is they've been told, if, if you're a millennial, you've graduated, what, 2010, 12, 14, 16, that area is when you graduated from college. You were told since you were a kid, show up, you'll be fine. You were also told, take these tests, pass these tests, and go to college, and when you go to college, you'll go to a good college, you'll get out, there'll be an awesome job waiting for you. That was all a lie. The tests have no value whatsoever. They're completely useless. College is a general, totally useless. And when they got out, what was waiting for them? The crash came and there was no recovery in America except for about 20 cities. Everything else, no recovery. 
So unless you live in one of those 20 cities, there was nothing waiting for you. But everyone told you there was. So now all of a sudden you get out. There's nothing waiting for you. You've got, you, it took you six years to graduate from your four-year degree. You're $100,000 in debt and you're working at Starbucks. You think I've been lied to. You people, you, you, you Gen Xers, you boomers, you stole my future. So you know what looks good to you right now? Socialism. Yeah, it does. And you don't look at that as stealing. You look at that as getting what's mine. Yeah. You stole that from me. So I, I deserve it. I was going to say, you just described your congresswoman. Yes. Al Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She 100%. grew up during the, 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 the crash of yes. 2008. And she doesn't think that capitalism is a good thing. Doesn't work for her. Hasn't. She had to be, literally, she was a bartender. Yes. It doesn't work for her. You see it everywhere. You, you see it everywhere. You look right now, and I, and I know New York State very well from my run. Right? I'm traveling across this entire state more than once. I've seen it many times. You find a guy or gal who goes to a trade school, becomes a plumber. They're making $100,000 a year at least. They're 24 years old, no college degree. Then their buddy who was told, go to college, take these tests, is 24 years old, $50,000 in debt, and is literally working at a fast food joint. That's everywhere. That's the norm. Imagine how you feel that you went through all of this. And not just that, you have kids who are literally snorting Adderall so they can do well in tests. I'm not making that up. That's a thing. And you millennials know that's true. This guy snorting Adderall so they can. They're not going to admit that. They're not going to admit it, but it's true anyway. Yeah, there we go. Yes. So I, I'm sorry, you guys are the bad ones. That's right. Yes. So, I mean, doing that to take tests, you know, contemplating suicide if they fail. We have a suicide epidemic in the in youth that we've never had before. It's all the, all the tests that doesn't even matter. Then they do all of this, get a college degree, and there's nothing waiting for them. Of course they think government has to fix this. Who else? When bad things happen to people, they create three archetypes. It's what human beings do. A villain, a victim, a vindicator. They just create them magically. It doesn't have to be true. They create them, right? So things didn't go well for me. Who's the victim? Me. Who's the villain? Um, if, if I come from the right, it's probably immigrants. If I come from the left, it's big business. But there's a villain either way. Someone's bad, right? Either, either the big business is screwing me over or immigrants screwing me over. Someone's screwing me over because they're the bad guys and I'm the victim. Who's the vindicator? Well, depends upon what side you're on. If you're on the right, it's Trump. If you're on the left, it's Bernie. Someone's going to fix it for me. And that's how it works. It's literally that simple. The, the purpose that you were describing earlier, I think, I, I wonder why it is that this third option that you and I are thinking is the keys to, to, to all of these tribal problems and all of these frustrations, uh, liberty and, and the opportunity and, and responsibility and hard work that comes with that. Um, why are we, or are we missing that window of opportunity? Because it seems to me that uh, right now as we speak, Bernie and her top, and, and his top acolyte, uh, AOC, um, they are capturing the imaginations of, of people that are, all they know is that the system's not working. Correct. For me. Yep. Why, yes. why, why aren't we capitalizing on that, and, and how could we? I, I think we are, and I've I got to cover three things on that. The first thing is you, you made a, a perfect point of that. These two people, right, the Trump and Bernie's of the world. America has been begging for the other for a long time, right? Since Obama, clearly, right? right? In theory, Hillary should have beaten Obama in 2008, right? She was clearly the most um, uh, uh, experienced person. But if you're a Democrat, Obama was the rebel, right? He was the rebel. So Democrats picked the rebel in 2008, and then he won, right? Again, they kept picking rebels. Rebels kept winning, right? Even Bush, if you look at 2000, Bush was a rebel compared to Gore. Gore was establishment, right? Clinton was a rebel. The first Clinton was a rebel, right? Bill Clinton was a rebel. Then you look at the next one. Trump, absolutely a rebel. We've been crying for a rebel for at least 20 years, if not more, right? We've been begging for something different. I think we are growing. How do I know that? 2018, I actually got ballot access for Libertarian Party in New York State. Never happened before in the history of Libertarian Party. New York State rated the least free state by Cato two years running. Take that, California. Yes, exactly. We're number one. Absolutely. Yay. Yay, yes, we're we got winning. number one. Yes. Finally, the least something. Free state. Yeah, we got it. See, and two years running. We are not playing games. So, so yes, that's what actually happened. Not just that. The second that I won, you meant this is a little bit inside baseball, but in New York State, 
a to get ballot access, you have to get 50,000 votes on a gubernatorial line. That's how it was. Well, I achieved that. I blew that away. They now changed the rules. <laughs> yes, I'm not joking. They changed the rules. Now it's 130,000 votes or 2%, whichever is higher. And now it's not every four years on the gubernatorial. Now it's every two years, so I can't do it this year. So they ensured that I'm out of it. This is like uh, Lucy and Charlie Brown and the football. That's correct. Yes. All third parties, not just the Libertarian Party, but every time, um, and this happened to Gary Johnson, and Mm -hmm. you you try to get on the presidential stage the way that Ross Perot did, Mm -hmm. and the two-party duopoly says, well, we're not going to let that happen again. Not going to happen, yes. We're not going to have, this is not a conversation. (laughs) That's correct. We're going to keep trading power back and forth. And that's why I know we are taking advantage of it. The second thing is, 2019 was the first year that a Libertarian Party was an official party in New York State. The first year. We had seven victories across this state. Seven. Now, New York State has what's called fusion voting. Some people don't know what that is, but that means in New York State, you can be on multiple lines. You can be a Democrat and Libertarian, Republican and Libertarian. You can be on multiple lines. Most states don't do that. I think about seven do it. So most don't, but in New York State, you can. If we count those that were cross-endorsed, we had over 100 victories. About 96 people who are cross-endorsed and seven who are libertarian. That's magic because you go back 40-some-odd years, the answer was zero. Now there's seven. So I think we are. I think it is happening. It's slow, obviously. And the problem is we, we are small parties still. Even though we are the largest third party, we're still minuscule compared to the rest. It's kind of it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. And I think the reason why um, rebel candidates and third party candidates and and I would go back to all the way back to Howard Dean, mm-hmm. Ron Paul, sure, Ron Tea, Paul, Tea Party candidates, Bernie, mm-hmm. Trump. They all sort of fit this model where where technology is allowing them to do an end run right. around the machine, but the machine does control the levers of power. And yep. and whether we like it or not, you know, being on stage, um, both literally and and figuratively, getting on TV, sure. mm-hmm. all that all of that really matters. Um, but the fact that they're they're so hostile to us tells me that that there's there's still an opportunity. So what I and so what I want to ask you is like so and we were talking about this before we went live, but you think that there is a real opportunity to reach the young people that are drawn to Bernie Absolutely. and AOC. Hundred percent. And the reason why I say that is And you're blowing people's minds because everyone's like, that's not possible. Libertarianism no. Democratic socialism, they're so far apart. You brought up liberty, so I'm going to bring up three different pieces. I, I want to remember liberty and happiness, so remind me if I forget. But let me first talk about the first thing you said, which is the idea of Bernie people coming to us. I know that's true because my media chief during my campaign was a firm, former Bernie bro. He ran veterans for Bernie, and he came to me. So I, I literally saw it happen. It did happen. It can happen. It will happen. And the reason is, this is a stat that most people don't know. Give or take about a third of the Bernie bros, once Hillary took the nominee, nomination from Bernie in 2016, went to Trump. How is that possible, you would think? Bernie and Trump, they're exact opposites. No, they aren't. They're both rebels. The people, many of them, not all, but many people who were supporting Bernie didn't know his policies, didn't care, couldn't have told you what his policy was. Politics is emotional. They just knew he's not her. He's not Hillary. I'm in. That's all they knew. He's not Hillary. I'm in. Hillary's establishment. He's not. I'm in. Well, he's going to take away everything. Fine. He's not Hillary. I'm in. So they cared about. When they lost, they went and said, Trump, he's not Hillary either. Okay, I'm in. That was it. It was that simple. I know that because when I was that youngster voting, I was exactly the same. I couldn't have told you if NATO would have made a good president or not, or if Perot would have made a good president or not. I don't know. Maybe. I have no idea. I still don't know the policies. But I didn't know it then either, but I pulled the lever for them because I thought they're not these guys. That's what I that's what I thought. So I think we absolutely can do that if we show us to be not those guys. It's the second piece. I don't talk about liberty. You rarely hear me talk about liberty or even freedom because the average person doesn't know what that means, doesn't care. They don't know. This is stuff that like libertarians talk about. I don't. I talk about ideas of finding your happiness. Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. We're the only part that's about that. And most libertarians get this wrong. Libertarians think that our movement is about liberty and freedom. It's not. It's about happiness. Liberty and freedom is the way to get to happiness. Liberty and freedom are the means to an end. 
not the end itself. Because here's the hardest part. Some people don't want to be free. And that's okay. Just don't force others to not be free. If you want to join a commune or be with the Amish or, or be controlled by your church or by your family or by your business or join the military as I did, giving up my freedoms or enlist or put yourself into a, uh, a, a commune or a nunnery, enjoy. Go ahead. Don't be free. I have no problem with that. Find your happiness. And we changed. You aren't the same person you were 10 years ago. Neither am I. And what would have made you happy 10 years ago probably wouldn't make you happy now. And 10 years from now, that will change. And so what? Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. If we pursue happiness, we'll get it sometimes, we'll lose it. But that's what government has to do. It has to create an environment to where we can pursue happiness to the best of our ability. I don't want to make everybody free. Some people don't want to be free. I want to allow people to be happy. When you speak that way, people hear it. They go, I do want to be happy. You're right. I am different than I was 10 years ago. I am. Well, I have an idea. How about why I just let you be you and you be me and go ahead? The last piece I'll bring up, how do we get millennials to us? Most people think millennials like socialism. They don't. It's not true. What millennials want is fairness. This is the critical thing. You ask millennials again and again and again, they want fairness. They've been told their entire life that the only way to get fairness is through government enforce. They don't, say, they don't say those words, but government makes things fair. Make it fair. Listen to youngsters now here when, when something goes wrong they don't like. When I say youngster, anyone say, I don't know, 18 and under. To me, that's a youngster. Ask them. And, and listen to them when something happens they don't like. They don't go, that's wrong, that's bad, I hate it. They say, that's not fair. Ah, he's laughing because he knows he hears it. All the time. It's something they don't like. They don't say, I don't like that. The phrase they use is, that's not fair right? Fairness matters to them tremendously. So I talk about fairness. How do we make it fairer? And they go, socialism. I go, great. How do, and this actually happened to me. There was a, a young woman who was at one of my events. She said to me, Larry, I think I'm a communist. I said, great. Awesome. Can I ask why? Well, you know, I think people should get stuff they need. I said, me too. That's amazing. I love that. So you care about fairness, right? She went, I do. Things should be fair. And I say things like, for example, we should all get like a one-bedroom apartment, something like that. She went, yeah, that would be great. I said, I agree. That'd be great. No, I didn't fight her. I didn't tell her she was wrong. I didn't beat her up or yell at her and any of that stuff. And this was at a libertarian event. So I was literally holding off the animals while I was doing this. Like, get away. Get away. I got this. Get away. I was holding the animals. I know those animals. Yes, yeah. I was holding off the animals, right? So then I said, great. I said, I have a question for you. I said, what if me and this guy, the guy sitting next to us, what if me and this guy both have a one-bedroom apartment? He's got no kids. I have four kids. Now what should we do? I mean, he's kind of just hanging out. I'm cramped. She went, oh, I don't know. I said, should I just take his house? Because I need two. I got four kids. She said, well, well, no. I said, you know what usually happens? She said, what? I said, cops come and make a decision. They decide who gets the house, who does what. They may throw me out. What if I don't want it, this house? What if I want a bigger house or a smaller house? What if he doesn't want to leave? Usually cops come. She goes, oh, yeah. I said, socialism can absolutely work if you're okay with consistent, aggressive, massive amounts of government-sponsored violence. Totally works. If you just want to make sure that you're constantly using government-sponsored, constant violence, it will totally work. If you're ready to put people in prison, execute them, all that kind of good stuff, totally will work. Just make sure you're on the side of the people doing the executing. Right? Don't be on the opposite side. It doesn't work for you then. But as long as you're okay, it can totally work. She said, I don't like that. I said, me either. Wouldn't it be better if we had a system to where people who wanted to get big houses could try to get big houses and people who want smaller houses could get those? And as their life changes, like after the guy was four kids, they all leave. He might want a smaller house. He can get a smaller house when he wants to. She said, yeah. I said, I like the system better. No violence in that one. She said, maybe I'm not a communist. That's a win. That's a win. Does that mean she's going to vote for me? No. Does that mean she's a libertarian now? No. But all I did was show her that there's another option. I didn't use liberty and freedom. I didn't attack her and call her a communist. I didn't do anything bad. I had a conversation, and I picked up where we agreed. And the biggest thing to remember is, for most people in America, most, not all, the end game we all agree upon is how to get there. So you'll hear me very often talk about what's the end game? What are you trying to achieve? Okay, let's talk about how to get there. If you go to somebody in New York State and across the country, I shouldn't say New York State, across the country, 
and say, we should abolish government schools. If you say that, you can say that if you want to, but here's what most people are going to think. <gasps> You're evil. You want my kid to die. You want my kid to be stupid. That's what I say. But if you start with, don't you want better education with your kids? They'll go, yeah, great. How can we get there? Now we have a conversation. And then eventually you might go to, maybe we should get rid of government schools. Yeah, maybe we should. You get that if you start with the end and not the means. If you start with the goal, you have that conversation. You'll hear me say often, I do not want people in the liberty movement having debates. You never see me in a debate. Unless I'm, unless I'm trying to win an election. You don't see me in a debate. I don't have debates. Right? I say, I don't need you to debate or argue. Because debates and arguments have winners and losers. I want you to have conversations. Hundreds and hundreds of conversations. Because eventually people will begin to turn. And people say all the time, but they're not real libertarians. They're not going to be libertarians for us. Let them vote for us once. It's fine. I'll take it. Just the fact that I don't think we're crazy fringe is all I care about. Take it. Eventually, this movement, this movement has to be the answer or there's no answer. Talk about the, the, the strange bedfellows that, that you gathered in your campaign because it wasn't just former Bernie bros. Um, I was actually at the 2016 Democratic Convention and I, I was speaking to this lady, 100% Bernie bro. I guess, mm -hmm. I, think, I don't think that's a um, gender-related name. It's just people that are fanatical about Bernie. And she just covered with Bernie paraphernalia and I started talking to her and I, and I think Trey was, Trey and Logan were actually there with me. And she wasn't. Closet Bernie bros. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, they're, they're, they're probably not at all. But uh, um, the more I talked to her, I realized she, she wasn't anything like a socialist or a democratic yes. socialist. She was a libertarian. She was a gun-toting, leave me alone, uh, and now she's from Vermont, so yep. there's there's a there's a real libertarian streak in in Vermonters for that very reason. Um, but she wanted a rebel. If if you started that conversation by making fun of her, yep, she would she would never open her her ears and her heart to what to what you had to say. And you had the same thing with with Trump guys. Absolutely, yes, I, all of them. And you know, I when I went when I did I did I, did a, I was a, a serious candidate when I ran, meaning I did a serious campaign. Right, I did at least 30 events every single month, at least, if not more, for a year and a half. So at every event I'd go to, almost all of them, I'd do a, a Facebook go live if I had Wi-Fi. Some place upstate New York don't have Wi-Fi. But if we had Wi-Fi, I would actually do a, a go live, right? So I'd do a go live, and I would ask this question all the time. I'd say, how many people here right now or very recently were registered Republicans? Hands would go up. How many right now or very recently were registered Democrats? Hands would go up. How many right now recently have been registered by something other than those two. Hands will go up every single event. I did that live cold that happened every time. We are the only movement that draws everyone together. State and County, uh, which is a, um, a publication in New York State, did an actual article, article on the most diverse um, campaign staff of the gubernatorial election. It was about diversity and all white males versus blah, 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 doing one of those things. I had no quotas at all for the people I hired for my campaign. They ranked me the most diverse campaign. The most diverse campaign was a libertarian. Most diverse. Of course, because I treat everybody the same. By, by not trying, but just, just representing a certain set of values. That's correct. Yeah. I just I pick the best talent I could find. Yeah. But I wasn't trying to go, I'm only going to get, oh, let me pick this. The others were literally in the article saying, we're going to look for people of color. They were actively trying and they couldn't find it. <laughs> they were actively trying. And they said it in the article. And I just said, nope. I just, best people I could find. And I wound up being, by someone else's measure, not my own, the most diverse campaign. So, so that beauty of diversity just happens if we let people be free. Well, the goal is we, we don't want diversity for diversity's sake. And we also don't want diversity just based upon race or gender. What we want is diversity of thought, which is very often includes gender and race, often includes that. But if you have three people of different genders and races all raised the same way from the same neighborhood, you don't really get diversity, if that makes any sense, right? You want to make sure you're getting diversity of thought and, and background and knowledge base. So you really want, which very often will be different genders and races, of course, generally. But that's the goal. But the goal is diversity of thought with unity of purpose. And that's in everything. Whether, again, business, family, government. I want diversity of thought, but I want unity of purpose. And my purpose in our movement is the same. 
individual happiness. That's how we win. Otherwise, it's we want Medicare. Or Med- that, that's not universal. I can't get that. Can I get everyone should be happy? Yeah, absolutely. Happy. That's the critical piece. Happiness. No, I stop worrying about or, the Or at least a chance to pursue it. Correct. Because, I mean, I think your personal story tells us that happiness is not something that you get to and then you stop. Correct. Because something else is coming around the corner. Absolutely. Somebody's going to get sick. Uh, your business is going to hit the rocks. 100%. Um, and and I, I, I understand that there's there's some people, I, I know them in my in my personal life and, and my, my friends and my neighbors. There's some people that aren't comfortable with the uncertainty of that pursuit absolutely and they, they want safety they don't yes. they don't they don't want to be free to pursue happiness and all we're saying is let let me be free to pursue happiness absolutely. because because I might be able to help you fix some of your problems if I'm free to to do things the way that I think they should be done and we see that in everything if we, we look at what creates the most successes it isn't the big established business Right? If you look at the business world now, I talk often about business, that's my normal world, right, is business world. The biggest companies aren't being the most innovative. They're buying the small companies who are innovative. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They, they're trashing their R&D program, and they're just saying, okay, let's look around. For, oh, well, you guys are good, buy you. You guys are good, buy you. They're doing that. So that individual person is still giving us the best results for whatever industry you want. It's yeah. a common thing. So we do want diversity of thought. It's critical. You can't have success without it. You just can't. So yes, I completely agree. Our movement's all about the happiness piece, which is why I want us to talk about that, right? I'll go one step further. The details of each individual policy, they will often trap you. And I say things like, and I use it all the time, I'll be in a room full of libertarians and I'll say, how many people here are against universal health care? All the hands go up. I go, no, none of you are. You're against the mandate. You're not against universal health care. You're against the mandate that forces it. And you just seem to go, uh, like they just can't handle what I just said. What? Yeah. You're against the mandate. If I had a way, I don't, but if I had a way that could get everyone covered without a mandate, would you be against it? They're like, well, no. Thank you. You're not against universal health care. There's a dog whistle people use and you fall for it. Don't. I'm not against universal health care. I'm not. I'm against a mandate that forces me to do stuff. That's what I'm against. It changes everything. But I don't just say me. I'm against government forcing anybody. Anybody. I don't use it, don't tread on me. I use don't tread on anybody. Because don't tread on me is selfish. Don't tread on anybody. One of the things when I, I, I ran, I supported some specific causes, which if you're running as a libertarian, you should be thinking about this. I supported some specific niche causes, which have nothing to do with me. I support, I support the vaping industry, right? Being attacked, there's no tomorrow in, in today's world, being attacked in New York State. People say, how can you support vaping? It kills people. Oh my God, it's horrible, it's an epidemic. And I say, first of all, maybe it is and maybe it isn't, but so is smoking, so is alcohol. Those are legal, why are we punishing vaping? Um, 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 yeah, exactly, N- not just that. I don't vape, I don't smoke. It doesn't affect me at all. It doesn't affect me in any way, shape or form. If every vape shop went under, it doesn't change my life at all, except that I know that we purposely destroyed the industry, got rid of at least 2,000 jobs in New York State, if not more, and crushed entrepreneurial spirit. Destroyed it. Destroyed entrepreneurial spirit in this state. That bothers me. But personally, that I've never bought a product in a vape store in my life. But I went to them often. And as I went to them, here's the worst part. I don't know if you know this. If you try to, on Facebook, if you try to advertise an event in the vape shop, Facebook will stop you. I'm not surprised at all. Yes, they will stop you. No, nope, you can't do it. So I would go to these shops knowing that I couldn't do Facebook ads and I'd have a, a lower uh, turnout, but I wouldn't care. I supported the industry because it matters, right? I supported a, a family court um, a reform in New York State for, for fathers who've been hammered, and some mothers too, but heavily fathers who've been hammered in New York State, fathers' rights movement. I'm not divorced in New York State. I didn't go through it. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect me at all. But everyone's rights matter, not just mine. I'm not a guy who goes, my rights. Nope. Our rights, all of our rights matter all the time. I support the Second Amendment. I don't own a firearm. I live in New York City. I'm not going to own a firearm here. I'm going to go to jail, guaranteed. Just guaranteed. I'm going to go to jail. I don't own a firearm, but I still supported it. I support many issues that don't affect me at all. This is what we have to do in this movement, understand it's not just for me and my rights. It's for everybody's rights. And and I'm, I'm hoping that one day, 
there's going to be something that affects my rights. Others will go, and you know what? Let me support Larry. He was he was on me with the vaping. He was on my side. I'm going to jump on his side this time. It comes around. I'm hoping it comes around one day when they come after me. That's yeah. my hope. So I have a theory that that um, you are a force of nature. That's not a theory. That appears to be a fact. But Ooh, I, a force of nature like that. I have a theory that we could do this for 12 hours. Yes. Uh, but we won't. I mean, I think you could do it. I might, I might get exhausted. Um, I'd love to have you back. But before we wrap up, tell us where now, now that now that we're um, have a little bit of, of this energy that we're feeding off of you, where can we get more Larry Sharp? You can get tons at The Sharp Way. That is my own video podcast. I do every every uh, Monday night live, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern uh, and live call-ins. You can call in and talk to me or all my guests. I don't always have guests, but sometimes I just yap myself and sometimes I have a guest. So it's uh, sharpway.com. Uh, the Sharp with Larry Sharp Facebook page, Sharpway Instagram, and Sharpway Twitter. Sharpway is the future. It's cool. It's me yapping like this for two hours straight every single week. Cool. Let's do this again. Perfect. Enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.